you are a member or attender of Grace Church, you know what book of the Bible. In fact, you should already be there, right? The book of Mark, and we're in chapter 14. If you're newer to us, maybe you watched Easter Sunday and now you're joining us, uh, we really, really value studying books of the Bible, going through verse by verse. And even though it runs contrary to a lot of churches, what they do, a lot of churches um, go through topical studies. They'll be six or eight weeks and then to a new thing, going with the idea that people's attention spans are very short. And so, therefore, you got to keep changing stuff. But we believe that the Scripture has so much to say that we must approach it in a way that it allows the text to speak, speak for itself. So we're back in Mark chapter 14. Just to catch you up a bit, Jesus has been in the Garden of Gethsemane, and G Jesus has been wrestling, uh, just praying. He, he's sorrowful. He's asking the Father, God, if there's any way, let this cup pass from me, but not my will, but your will. And, and what's that about? That's about the fact that Jesus, for the first time, would be separated from his Father, that he wouldn't be in that perfect harmony with his Father, and his Father, um, his will being given to his Son during the time on the cross, there would be that break there. And so Jesus is um, looking toward that moment, and he's agonizing over that moment. So as we talked about, it's not the physical pain, it's not the crucifixion that Jesus was agonizing about. It was the cup of God's wrath that would be poured out upon him. And you remember he left his disciples to pray, and he had three close by, and then the rest of them a little further back. And he kept going back to the three for three occasions, and there they were asleep. And finally, Jesus has come to peace with what's ahead of him. He returns and he gets the disciples and he says, it's time. The accuser's right here. And immediately there's Judas and a multitude of people to arrest Jesus. And in fact, they come with clubs. They come with swords. They're ready to take Jesus and the disciples by force. Again, highlighting the fact that they just misunderstood Jesus, the fact they thought they had to do it this way. But Peter, um, he's excited in the moment. He gets caught up in the moment. He's ready to defend Jesus, maybe to back up what he, his words that he said, I'm going to die for you. He takes his sword out, cuts off the ear of the servant of the high priest, and then Jesus reaches down and puts the ear back on the servant. At this time, obviously, the, these, these disciples could have been wiped out. They could have been killed by the soldiers. So they begin to, be, to flee, just take off in the darkness. They begin running and scattering for their lives. Well, there's something interesting here that Mark shows us that none of the other gospel writers give us this little bit of information. It's just one verse in verse 51, uh, and, or two verses, 51 and 52. And there's somebody that's nearby and the scripture says it's a young man, probably between the age of 15 to 25. And he's hiding and he's taking this in. Look at verse 51. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized him. So when the soldiers began to run after the disciples to capture them after Peter's violent uh, little confrontation there, they begin to scatter, and they begin to chase after them, apparently. And here is this guy who's been following, and all he has is a linen cloth about his body. What is that about? Well, most uh, writers, uh, commentators believe by consensus this is Mark, the writer of our book. And this is a way of him inserting himself into the text. And may I say, in, in a very shameful way, 
that he puts himself into the story here, if this is Mark indeed. You know, and, and that's what I love about the Bible. The Bible is very much, it just lays it out there. there you know, you got Peter who, Mark, this book of Mark, this gospel of Mark is probably Peter's account of the life of Jesus. Yet we find Peter confessing this big thing about Jesus, I'm going to always be with you, I'm going to die for you, and then we'll see next week Peter denying Jesus. And so the Bible is a very honest book. It comes at you and it shows warts and all. And I think this is refreshing for us as Christians to realize that sometimes we want to set ourselves up like, you know, we don't sin that much and we got it together and we're doing pretty well. And there's not that level of authenticity and says, you know, I'm struggling. This Christian life is tough. It's difficult. And if the disciples who were personally discipled by Jesus for three years could stumble and fall in such ways, Surely we can as well, and, and we do. And so we have possibly Mark there, and he's, he, he begins to run, and, and they chase after him. And he, he, he's left, uh, he leaves the linen cloth, it says in verse 52, uh, and, and he runs away naked. He's running out of the garden naked. And, and what is that about? If this is Mark, uh, a couple of little things here. We learn in Acts that Mark and his family lived in Jerusalem, and more than likely they were a very wealthy family. In fact, Acts talks about how all the believers, many believers, came and met in the home there of, of Mark and his mother, whose name was Mary. And so for that many believers to gather, it had to be a pr pretty large house. And some other things that I won't go into today um, shows that they, they probably were wealthy, and then some speculate that Judas and the arresting party, when they went to look for Jesus, after, remember, Judas left the, the Last Supper, and he went out to betray him, got the party together, they came back looking. Some even think that maybe this meal was being held, the, the Passover meal, the Last Supper, was being held at Mark's mom's house. I think that's unlikely, but nevertheless, uh, when this commotion is going through the city, city and, and, and Mark hears this, more than likely, he jumps up, he grabs the sheet around from around, you know, to put around him over his PJs. He takes off and begins to follow after the arresting crowd. Possible theory. And, and so he finds himself there in the garden with only that on him. And he's so terrified at this moment that he would rather flee away naked in the woods than he would be to be arrested with Jesus and stand with Jesus. So he runs off naked he like the other disciples but worse with no clothing on he abandons Jesus at Jesus's greatest moment of crisis and so the terror the fear that's going on in this moment and these disciples are just looking to to save themselves and Mark if this is Mark he's looking to save himself and he, he runs away and it's complete opposite of what Jesus taught us in Mark chapter 8 verse 35 we looked at many weeks ago when Jesus told his disciples and others who were listening, he said, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. And so if there's ever truly a time in your life when probably you behaved in a very shameful way, it's probably during this age time period of Mark or whoever this was running off naked shamefully in the garden. Uh, during our time between 18 and 25, the years that most people are in college, maybe you're thinking about your own life and think about the things that you did during that time, the way that you behaved during that time, and the shame that you brought upon yourself during that time because you felt like and maybe even encouraged by some to go off and sow your wild oats. I've known Christian parents, pretty, pretty solid Christian parents, I thought, 
who encourage their kids to go off to college and sow their wild oats. That's a problem because there's a serious, serious issue for Christian parents giving their kids that kind of advice. You know, what kind of duplicitous thinking is that? I mean, that's so conflicting. And then the fact that if the Holy Spirit lives within us, there should be this draw to truth, this draw to follow Jesus rather than just living life on our own terms. And so you, people go off during this age, they live in a way, and they look back, and they're like, I cannot believe I lived that way. I cannot believe I did those things. And I love about the college campuses today, maybe not the case for some of us when we were older, but there's so many opportunities on college campuses to follow Christ. You know, you have the local church that's nearby, but you have Crew, InterVarsity Fellowship, you have BCM, you have Wesley, you have Navigators, you have Campus Outreach. You have all these organizations that are there to minister to students on most college campuses. And one particularly impacting that I took students to was called Passion, which many of our students have gone to that uh, in January um, of each year. It's held at different places. In the year 2000, I went to Passion, what was called One Day. It was this outdoor, you camped out, and you had these pastors come and speak. And this was my first encounter with Pastor John Piper, and he spoke to this massive crowd of college students, and he talked about don't waste your life, don't squander your life, and he wrote a book after this called Don't Waste Your Life, and just that day listening among all these college students, I was in my late 20s, I think I was 29 uh, during that time, and, and I was listening and watching these students, and God was just impacting people, and here we are 20 years later, and people are still have been greatly impacted. Many people are in ministry as a result of that event. And so these, these, these campus ministries have such impact on the time period where many people are living in a shameless, just out there, kind of just doing whatever they want to do kind of way. And um, this week I had a chance to, this past week I had a chance to sit down with a couple college students and actually Mitch interviewed them and I, and I was here in the room with them and talked about their trip to Jamaica with the Wesley ministry at UGA. They're UGA students and they shared a little bit and I want you to watch this and be encouraged because not all college students are living in a, a way that just shames the gospel. So check out Jeb and Colin. Hello, my name is Colin Woodrum. Um, me and Jeb both had the opportunity this past spring break to go to Jamaica. I went last year. My probably two main reasons for wanting to go were just finding Christian community and growing closer to people I'd already met. And then also just like missions has always been like a, a calling on my life. My sister went to Jamaica at UGA her freshman year and she just kept saying it's gonna change her life. It's amazing and best experience of my life. Like. Best thing by far, nothing comes close. I remember after coming out of it last year, like one of the big questions on my mind was why did everybody experience God so much in Jamaica? Well, because we're doing exactly what the Bible says. We're living in Christian community, we're constantly serving others, and we're just, God is, I mean, when we wake up, we have devotions to do. You see other people going out and doing devotions, you know, it just makes you hungry. Uh, to, for the word and just to see what God can do in your life. Before I went to college, I remember Pastor John shared a message and it was the, whoever you hang out with the first two weeks is pretty much gonna be your road down college. So it just, community is a large determinant in who you are in college. Wesley is a huge ministry. And so like, there's plenty of people who come every Wednesday who never take the, like, the next step to like really get involved. You know, they come to Wesley and you know, check that off the list. 
but they aren't involved, which is really where like church and community starts happening. Isn't when you like sit down and watch a sermon. You know, it's when you're like involved with people, going through life with people, and serve God and be a part of something that's bigger than yourself. Wesley, we're pretty fortunate with the opportunities that we have there, like through the mission trips, the um, the different things you can get poured into, like different programs. To have those opportunities in place is just really awesome. Just to be able to thrive and build on that, it's just, it's really, really helpful. Well, that's quite encouraging, especially when that's not the norm. And I want to encourage families during this time of extra opportunity for discipleship to take the opportunity to really, really admit to your, your kids, admit to them if you have older students, that you know, you've not made the main thing the main thing and that you've allowed either just laziness or lack of focus on your side to not uh, raise the bar high for them and help them to see that life is about Jesus. Piper said this, and this was a, such a great quote. He said, desire that your life count for something great. Long for your life to have eternal significance. Desire that your life count for something great. Eternal significance. And so let's think about, you know, 100 years from now, what really matters? Does it matter the big house and the, and the car and all the stuff this world says you have to have? Or does it matter whether you live for Jesus Christ? Because that's what matters 100 years from now. Those other things are insignificant. And so you see, in contrast with Peter and Mark living very much a self-defensive way of, uh, of here in after the garden and running away, Jesus exemplifies self-denial. He shows a contrast between this is what he desires, us to follow him, be like Jesus, and deny yourself. So look at this, verse 53 says, And they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. Let's pause there for a second. And so what's happening, they're forming this trial. There's going to be two phases of this trial for Jesus. There's a religious trial, and there's going to be a civil trial. And so at first, Mark doesn't tell us this, but there's a really quick uh, meeting with the former high priest, who still had a great influence in Jerusalem and the land there. And they met with him quickly, and then they went off to the current high priest, who was Caiaphas, and his house would have been right there near the temple. And they began to assemble the Sanhedrin, which was kind of like the religious supreme court of the day, 70 men plus the high priest. And this is, if you follow the traditional timeline of the Passion Week, this would be the early hours of Friday morning, very late Thursday night after midnight Thursday, early hours of Friday. And so you got these people trying to get assembled. There's no group text message. Hey, guys, come on over. Like the word's having to spread. It's getting out. So these people are trickling in, and the information about Jesus' capture is happening, and they want the speedy trial. They want this thing to get going. And so they're at Caiaphas' residence, and members of the Sanhedrin were there. Uh, and the Jewish leader wanted to expedite this trial in a hurry. They wanted the next morning when people woke up, they wanted it to be a done deal before the news of Jesus' arrest got out to the community. Because remember, Jesus is still popular among the crowds. And so spin wasn't invented in the 20th century, okay? Spin didn't come about when cable news networks took place, all right? Spin's been around for a while, and they wanted to make sure they were in a strong position to spend this with the people where that Jesus could be taken and put to death. And so then it flows back to Peter intentionally. Again, Peter probably, this, he's the one that's narrating this. Mark's writing it down. Flows back to Peter. And Peter, give him a little credit here, he's followed behind. He's at a distance. So he ran off, came back around, falling at a distance. And he comes into the courtyard 
of Caiaphas' house there, the high priest, and he was sitting with the guards, and he's warming himself by the fire. So Jesus is up in a second story, and he's in a trial with these leaders of Israel, the high priest, and here is Peter sitting down below around the fire. And I love Warren Wearsby, pastor and commentator, points out the irony here. Earlier in the garden, right, Jesus was sweating as if it were great drops of blood. So Jesus is perspirating, and Peter is in the courtyard warming himself. But he's still there. He's watching from a distance. Now, verse 55 and 56. Now, the chief priest and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against each other, but their testimonies did not agree. So the Gospels make it clear that the Sanhedrin had no legitimate charge against Jesus. And you can go verse by verse through this trial, and there's just nothing there. This is a rigged courtroom. This is rigged to put Jesus to death. And even their false witnesses couldn't agree with one another, right? Because probably they were grabbed at the last minute. This thing fell together really, really quickly. And so they were grabbing people and pulling it together. And even these guys couldn't agree with one another. And the best they could come up with is in verse 57 through 59. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. And yet even this testimony didn't agree. So they bring up this, what Jesus had commented about the temple, and they take it and, and take it out of context and change the words around. Jesus didn't say, I will destroy this temple. So either they're referring to, or probably referring to both, where Jesus prophesied about the destruction of the temple by others, the Romans, or there, it was an allusion to John 2.19 where Jesus said, he would, uh, that the temple would be destroyed, that not that he would destroy it, but the temple would be destroyed, and he would rise it again in three days. And so they can't even agree, even this rigged testimony, they can't get it right. And so as you can imagine, here we are, the chief priest, the, the Sadducees, these people, these leaders of Israel, the Sanhedrin, they're getting very frustrated, getting irritated, impatient, because this is not going the way that they wanted it to go. Because Jewish law was clear, Old Testament law and Deuteronomy, that you had to have evidence on the basis of two to three witnesses if you're going to put somebody to death. And so they needed to find two witnesses at least to agree with one another. They couldn't find that. So verse 60, Caiaphas just takes matters into his own hands here, and he confronts Jesus. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men are testifying against you? But Jesus knew they didn't have anything. He remained silent. He gave no answer. He didn't need to defend himself against this false testimony. And so then Caiaphas just takes it right to the, the heart of the matter. He asked Jesus directly in verse 61. He says, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? Are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? You see, he asked him plain and simple, are you deity? Are you the son of God? He uses the word blessed because many of you know that Jews would not use the name of God, and this was a substitute for God's name. But basically, he asked him point blank, are you the Messiah, and are you God? And Jesus, up to this point, if you've been tracking with us, Mark, Jesus has been very, very careful in his choice of words, and especially around the religious leaders of the day, he would not... Uh, say that he was the Messiah. He would not claim to be deity. 
Um, even when Peter, back in chapter 8, confessed Jesus to be the Christ, he strictly charged them, the disciples, not to tell anyone. And we talked about this, why that was, but Jesus was on his own timetable. He was on the timetable of his Father's will for the cross. And so he did not want to do anything to speed up his earthly ministry until the time was right. And also, the people had a, a completely false concept of the Messiah, who the Messiah was. It was all about their political deliverance, mostly from, from, from Rome, and very little about who Jesus claimed to be and what Jesus was really about, and for sure not what the prophet Isaiah and others had said would be the Messiah, the suffering servant. And so Jesus responds when Caiaphas straight out asks him, are you the son of the, of the blessed? He says, I am. I am. And then he adds to this, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. This significance, the significance of the statement is very, very important to look at this. He, he makes not just a theological statement about himself, but he makes a political statement about himself. He says that I am the Son of God, I'm the Son of Man, I'm the Son of God, I'm deity. And then he makes a claim that the Romans would be satisfied with to put him to death. That he said that he was uh, seated at the right hand of power, coming in the clouds of heaven. So Jesus claimed to be God's agent to be received as a king. And this was what they needed from Jesus. So Jesus gives it to him, and although they think they had Jesus, we got him, we got him. The truth is, Jesus was perfectly in charge, as he always was and as he always is. Back in John 10, 18, Jesus said, no one takes my life from me. He says, I give it up by myself. I have the right and the power to take it back again. So Jesus shows that he's in control. He gave them what they wanted to hear because the time was right. He was ready for the cross. He was ready to fulfill the promises of the Old Testament. He was ready to make the sacrifice. He was ready to take on the wrath of God for all of us. And the fact that you and the fact that I can walk boldly into the throne room of God and pray and request and ask is because what Jesus did for us. Jesus, the great high priest, who took on our sin for us, the great exchange, we got his righteousness, he took our sin. And then, verse 63, when the high priest and, and the others heard this, it says the high priest, he tore his garments and said, what further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. This, what is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. They all condemned him. Condemned him to serving death. Despite Jesus' death sentence here by the Sanhedrin, there was still another part to this. Romans wouldn't allow the Jews to kill somebody. They wouldn't allow execution. So he would have to go before Pontius Pilate. But they had everything they needed. In their mind, this was a done deal, which we know it is. We know that they're going to take him to Pontius Pilate. They're going to take him. And what's going to happen next is they're going to ultimately crucify him. But they didn't wait for that to be official all this pent-up hatred and all this anger and all this hostility, it was released upon Jesus. Look at verse 65. It just breaks your heart if you love Jesus to, to, to read these words. And it says, Some begin to spit on him and to cover his face and to punch him, to strike him, saying, Prophesy! Prophesy! They're mocking him. They're trying to say, Okay, who hit you, Jesus? If you're so smart, if you're the Messiah, if you know these things, who hit you, Jesus? 
and spitting the ultimate sign of just belittling Jesus, degrading Jesus, just grossly just treating him in this way because all of this had built up. And if you followed with us, you see that all this hatred and anger was coming out. And then the guards received him with blows, it says. They took turns just beating him, pummeling him. And all this, again, is the fulfillment. I think of verses like Isaiah 50, verse 6. It says, I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. You see, long before, this was the way it was going to be. And so as we look at this passage, and as over the next weeks we look at the crucifixion and the passion of Jesus, it's going to be horrifying to think about our Savior going through this for, for us. But I want to put us today in a position of Peter, and again next week, which will be his denial, and of Mark, if it was Mark who ran naked out of the garden. Peter made great claims back in chapter 8, as I alluded to a few minutes ago, when he said, you're the Christ. He knew Jesus was the Christ. He knew Jesus was the Messiah. He knew he was the anointed one. He knew Jesus was the King of kings. Yet, even though he knew Jesus was the Christ, his conduct contradicted his confession. His conduct contradicted his confession. And so while Jesus was being interrogated and while he's being beaten, he watched from a distance. And we're going to see him deny next week. And then Mark runs away naked in shame. And a little more about Mark as well that you may not be aware of. Mark shows up again quite a few times in Acts. And in Acts 15.38, he's on a missionary journey with Paul and Barnabas. And during his mission there, in Cyprus, more than likely, there was only one person who came to Christ, only one convert. Mark, more than likely, he's discouraged, he's frustrated. And verse 38 of Acts 15 says, John Mark had de- deserted them in, in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in their work. He deserted them and did not continue with them in their work. He returned home to his comforts. He couldn't handle being on the missionary journey, he was frustrated, he was selfish. But the cool thing is, it's not the end of the story for John Mark. John Mark ends on a positive note. Later, Paul and he reconcile. Paul recommends him for ministry. And I love that because I love the fact that God gives second chances again and again and again. And many of us can identify with Peter and Mark because we've been there as well. And, you know, it's easy to look at our, maybe our time in college and when we were younger and identify some, some big things. But the truth is, we deny Jesus all the time. We say one thing. We say, yeah, Jesus is my Savior. He's my Lord. But we can't drag ourselves out of bed to read his Bible. We say, man, Jesus answers prayer. I believe it. But we never pray. And when we do pray, it's quick. And a million things, other things in our mind. And we carry about our business. And then we wonder why there's not life-changing power in our lives. Because we're not investing in our relationship with him. And without total reliance on God, even the most intimate of Jesus' followers crumbled. Even the most intimate of his followers, the ones who knew him personally the best, crumbled under the circumstances. 
So who are we to think if we can rely upon our own strength and not upon the revealed word of God and prayer that we are going to accomplish anything in our ministries, our callings? And so scripture again and again uses metaphors for our spiritual walk, which shows how slow and how deliberate it must be. That it doesn't come in big moments, but it happens little by little. I think of illustrations like a farmer planting a crop. There's nothing quick about that. About children growing up is a metaphor that's used. Children don't grow up overnight, although sometimes it may seem like it looking back, but they don't. It's little by little by little. A, a distance runner versus a sprinter. It's a distance run. It's a marathon. And then a, a traveler walking under the sun, the, the hot sun. Those are some of the metaphors Scripture gives for what the Christian life is like. And so please use this time and invest your life in what matters most, which is Jesus Christ and a relationship with him. Don't rely upon your own strength. Your own strength says, I know, and so I don't need this. And what you're basing it on is your knowledge. And Peter had knowledge, and he failed miserably. You have to know Jesus, and you have to sacrifice something your time, your comforts, in order to pursue him. Over the last few years, I've gotten to know a guy that many of you that go to our church know, and maybe even from our community know. His name's Tyler Thomas. And over the years, Tyler, if you could come on up, over the years, Tyler's mentioned to me about a time period in his life where he strayed away from, from Jesus, where he began to just live for himself and to uh, not follow Christ and grew up in a Christian home, but yet chose his own way. And so Tyler, uh, just in the last few minutes we have here, talk to me a little bit about when, when was this time that you mentioned to me that you just walked away from Jesus and what was going on during that time? Um, when I was younger, you know, I grew up in a good home and had good upbringing. I knew Bible verses and everything. And uh, I would have said I was, I would have probably, I would have still said I was a Christian. And, um, you know, I think you just start to kind of, I started living for, I guess, looking for pleasure and, you know, college and then after college and early in my restaurant career, um, you know, and it's a tough industry too, because just alcohol, drugs and, and late nights and everything kind of plays into it. And so you can get wrapped up. It's kind of, I heard Jeb say, who you surround yourself with, you can start to follow a path one way or you could go, the, I kind of went that way. And so, so um, how many years was your deviation away from Jesus? I mean, it was in my way in, in my twenties and, um, my young adult kind of like professional career. Um, and then one day, um, I just felt like I quit the, I quit the business and took like a year off. And I know I just started reading the scriptures and I just kind of locked myself in a room. I was working of course during the day, but I'd started reading the scriptures and, um, read, really read through the whole Bible in about a year. And, um, I got to second Peter and I was really already believing and, and, you know, it's like, I don't know when God saved me. Cause I felt like the whole time he, you know, he, he, he called me, but there was this point in my life. And, and then I remember one scripture, second Peter one sixteen, where Peter says, um, for we, we've not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. So they literally right there, Peter said me, you know, the other apostles, his disciples, we saw him again after he died and we saw him ascend to heaven. And, um, and it just like that's when I realized like wow this is eyewitness testimony. So so was this a moment where it went kind of from head knowledge you've been trained and taught the scriptures but all of a sudden something just clicked 
that you realized this was real. Yeah, yeah, and I think it was kind of, it took, it was a period of months or maybe a year where it went from head to heart and it changed the way I lived. And and that verse, I read it one time and I, like I burned in my brain and I memorized it. And I, and I have a very hard time memorizing scripture. So, um, and you know, in a sense, it's like, it's been a battle. Some days are tougher than others. It's not like a, but it's, you were talking about um, sort of, um, you know, living in the, in, in trying to do it on your own. And I do find myself sometimes trying to live, you know, and, and, and do everything myself. And so that's one of my struggles, especially in the business I'm in is, is being, um, in the, in the word and living and walking in the spirit. And so you can quickly get pulled back into just negative patterns with your behavior and things you do and say, and so it's still, you know, a battle, but every day I wake up and I realize like I'm a new creation in Christ made for his good work. So I try to, and a lot of times we talk about, you know, in church about living through the strength of Christ. And, you know, what that means simply is just we are in communication with God. Just like Jesus, the model of Jesus. What's your will in this moment? What do you want in this moment? And, and that always has to do with people. More than most, I mean, the majority of the time, it's about people and their lives and intersecting with them and sharing with them Christ or encouraging them in their walk. And so uh, that's what I think Tyler is referring to here when he talks about, you know, not on his own strength, which is, you know, you could just read a short devotion, I'm off for my day and do my thing, and that's not relying upon the strength of Jesus and the Holy Spirit. So it's developing, you said this earlier to me when we were talking, developing patterns and d- disciplines. And that's that's one thing this year I'm trying to be a lot more disciplined in, in um, you know, studying the scripture, reading the scripture. Right now this, you know, pandemic, whatever is going on is made it more difficult for me because I'm working, Heather and I are, are separated much longer and I'm at work much more. So it's kind of, it was off to a great start in the last month has been pretty, pretty challenging. Um, but I want to be a better disciple and a better mentor and, and person for all those people that have to work with me and deal with me on a daily basis. I'd like to be a better disciple and, and hopefully, you know, grow in my walk so that other people will look and go, Hey, you know, I want to be, I want to live his, instead of, you know, battling my flesh and battling the, the, all these things in life. And so, um, you know, one thing I do have is, is peace though, with whatever happens. I mean, knowing that you have Christ, you have a, you have a peace, you know, um, you have hope. And that's something I didn't have before is, you know, what was I doing every day? You're scrambling to try to get pleasure or find something that, that will satisfy you. And, and now I have that satisfaction. I mean, I get, can get stressed out and have stress in my life, but overall the underlying peace and joy is, is there. And I have hope regardless of, you know, what happens. So. And like I said, you know, the metaphors in scripture for sanctification, growing like Christ, it's not a quick process. And we're all in, in a work in the, in the works. I was sharing with Tyler earlier that, this uh, prayer life during this time has been really tough for me. Yeah, you know, I just have a hard time focusing. Maybe it's the pressure around. And so I hope it's encouraging for you to hear your pastor say, you know, it's hard for me to stay focused in prayer because we're all growing to be like Christ. And we all have those moments of Mark and those moments of Peter where we're not who we say we are. And we, not, we aren't who we are. We act like somebody other than what Christ has made us. And so I hope you're encouraged today, and uh, I hope you'll just be in the Word, talk to Jesus, get to know Jesus, and maybe you can relate to Tyler's uh, story here. And if you need someone to talk to, please text me, call me if you're struggling in your walk with, with, with Jesus and you're really, really needing some accountability because it is a marathon. It's not a sprint. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for this time we can get together um, even though it's online and people are sitting in their living rooms or in their bedroom on a phone, or God, they're uh, maybe just joining us late, or maybe some just cut out early because their heart's not really in this, God. And there's so many things that are going on around us possibly, and it's definitely a weird time 
for us. But we thank you for each person who's um, joined us today. And God, may your word not be returned void as you promised it wouldn't. God, that your word will connect with the heart of those who truly know you. And if they find themselves watching from a distance, if they find themselves ashamed, naked, so to speak, that in, in, their, in their lifestyle, in their living, and, and they're running away from you and denying you, God, may today be the first step to come back toward you, God, that you have not left them. They have left you and they've abandoned you. And there you stand being crucified for them. Yet we want to live for ourselves, God. Help our words today, help your word, help Tyler's words and, and Jeb and Colin to remind people what really matters for eternity. And may we live our lives differently as a result. In Jesus' name, amen.